Please open your scriptures to Matthew chapter 27. And as you open there, I was uh, reminded as as Mike was praying for the churches in our area, um, I was remiss in sending out a, an email this week that I got from Dan Venable of Cornerstone uh, Baptist Church here on the back side of the island. Uh, they are merging with Head of the Harbor Church. They used to be uh, um, uh, Wayne's Church and uh, most recently um, Pastor Crabtree. But uh, they're merging. And next Sunday, uh, please put it on your calendar, they're having a, a kind of a celebration uh, picnic at 4 o'clock that they'd love to invite us to. I'll send out emails to that effect. But I just wanted to let you know that there's exciting things happening here on this island. That is a good thing that's happening there. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. They're merging, and I think that body will be stronger for it. Please uh, bow and pray one more time with me. Father God, I ask you to send your Holy Spirit right now and convict us and encourage us through your word. Lord, these we can't say any scripture is more important than others, but certainly we are on hallowed ground here with the crucifixion and death of your Son. Help me through your Spirit to preach it well. In Jesus' name, amen. So symbols hold deep meaning. I just consider the lotus flower of Buddhism. Its wheel-like shape is to symbolize the cycle of life and, and its emergence from the, the waters to uh, symbolize uh, uh, order out of chaos. Or, or consider the, the uh, Davidic star of Judaism symbolizing the, perhaps their greatest time as a people of God with their greatest king. Or maybe we can go to the symbol of Marxism, the hammer and sickle, symbolizing the union of the two main forms of labor, manufacturing and agriculture. And even to modern day China, where we have those five stars on a red background pointing to one star, symbolizing the, the unification of, this, of, of all peoples under one regime. There are many symbols during the early years of Christianity that arose. Many symbols. Some of them we still are, are familiar with today. The, the, the fish symbol on the back of cars sometimes we see. The ichthus. Or the dove. Or the lamb. But history being the great arbiter that it is, the symbol that came to, to, to be uh, full of all the, the meaning of, of what we believe is the cross of Christ. The symbol the early Christians certainly would have issued. They would not have embraced this symbol. They would never have chosen the cross to symbolize what they believe because it was a symbol at that time, of oppression, of shame, of defeat, it was the ultimate symbol of death. And we think of those few followers who were at the cross at that time. We're going to read about a few of them today. As they stood and they watched Jesus on that cross. 
that day, those people did not see conquest. They did not see victory. They saw no work being done at that time. The scripture tells us that for after that, that, that the greatest work of all time was being done at that moment. But it was hidden from their view, wasn't it? But I think it's revealed by Matthew. Perhaps in a hidden way, by the five miracles that he records alone. Of all the gospel writers, he records five miracles that happened as Jesus hung there. And I think those five miracles point to his greatest work that he was doing on the cross. Look with me, starting in verse 45 of chapter 27. God's word says this. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went up into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were many also, many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Jesus hung on the cross for six hours from the Jewish third hour to the Jewish ninth hour, from from 9 a.m. till 3 p.m. And we know a lot about the first three hours that Jesus hung on the cross. We know 
quite a bit about those first three hours. We read about them last week. You can just look look previous to where I just started reading, and you can see that there was mocking going on, deriding of Jesus, that the soldiers were gambling for his garments, that three of the of the seven last words of Jesus were spoken in those three hours. But from the sixth hour, noon, until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., we don't know a whole lot about what was going on. And that's what that's where our text is taking us, in those three silent hours. What was happening? Matthew tell, tells us much more than the other gospel writers do about these three hours, including no less than five miracles that occurred. And the first being darkness, the miracle of darkness. If you look at Matthew 45 there, we see that darkness covered the land. Could you imagine being there? Here you are, nine to noon, nice bright day, and then all of a sudden it just starts getting darker and darker and darker and darker and darker like night. No eclipse, no cloud cover. Just darkness. There was a reason Paul wrote have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales because you can imagine the Jews and the Gentiles were going crazy trying to interpret this darkness. What was going on there? Everyone was trying to figure out and give a reason for this negative omen. This is a negative omen. But for the thoughtful Jew, perhaps there would be some inkling of understanding. This darkness would have started to evoke memories of their history. Memories of of the ninth plague on Egypt, that that plague of darkness, that judgment, because that's what each plague was, a judgment on Egypt. Or perhaps they would evoke memories of of the prophets that they had read. Like Isaiah who spoke of darkness as a precursor of judgment saying, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will give no light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. The wicked for its iniquity. Those kinds of verses would be coming alive in their hearts and minds as they see this, this supernatural darkness descend. It's a sign of judgment. And that's exactly what was going on in those three hours. It's exactly what was going on. Judgment. Judgment for the sins of the world that were being heaped upon Jesus. Over and over, waves of judgment. Wave after wave of God's wrath. He was paying the awful price for our sin in those three hours. Because someone has to pay. Someone has to pay. See, our sins cannot simply be just be swept away. They simply just can't be forgiven. Scripture shows us from the beginning to the end that God put it into the very fabric of his creation that sin has to be paid for. 
I mean, from the beginning when, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and God himself killed an animal to clothe them, blood. To the bloody sacrificial system that the Jews had been doing for century upon century. To the law of Lex Talionis, an eye for an eye. To Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's woven into the fabric. Someone has to pay for sin. It just can't be waved off like a magic wand. In the article of Christianity Today magazine, Mark Galley notes how deep down the idea of punishment for sin actually makes sense to us. It's not arbitrary or primitive. Galley argues that punishment somehow balances the moral books. That is why forgiveness as a mere act of the will is not sufficient. Sin must be paid for. The debt must be paid. This is, as he says, the, the, the trope that Hollywood movies make money on. They depend on this innate kind of uh, moralism. When a great injustice has been done, retribution is due. In the movies, when a villain kills many people, deep down we want to see him pay for it. And we go back to the movies again and again and again to see that payment. Because deep down, it satisfies us. Somebody has to pay for that. And we see this at work on a spiritual level on the cross right here. Our sins cannot be swept away with the wave of a hand. God just can't say, "Uh, okay, it's done. Nobody has to pay for this. Our sins need to be punished. And in these three hours of darkness... 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that he bore in his body our sins in payment of. Martin Luther, thinking about that very verse, wrote that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that ever was or ever could be in the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's what was going on in those three hours. Our sins were being heaped and heaped and heaped upon him. And he was feeling wave after wave after wave of God's wrath. And he did that for us. I love what Mark told us earlier or explained to us earlier. Imagine knowing that that is coming. His whole life, but certainly as he entered Jerusalem, that he was going to experience hell on earth. In those three hours, Jesus suffered an eternity of hell. And that's why he cried out at the end, Why have you forsaken me? He's bearing our judgment, our punishment. He's experiencing our hell. 
But there was a second work that was being done on the cross. And we see this in the second miracle through the veil. It says in verse 51 that right after Jesus yielded up his spirit, that the veil was rent in two from top to bottom. Look at it with me in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple was a series of kind of concentric rectangles, one inside the other. You know, from the court of the, of the Gentiles to the court of the women to the court of the priests to the holy place to the most holy place. And, and separating that, that the, the two innermost chambers, the most holy place from the holy place, the holy place is where the, the showbread was put every day, 12 loaves of bread to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and the, and the, inc, uh, the altar of incense that was before the, 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 this great curtain that would, was symbolically taking the prayers of the people for mercy up to the throne of heaven, and the menorah on the other wall. That's where the priest ministered and prayed. But there's this great thick curtain that stood between that place and the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Where God's very very presence was promised to be. His Shekinah glory hovering above the Ark. In that room, no one entered, except once a year. The high priest would enter on the Day of Atonement, only after going through a a long and lengthy cleansing ritual. He would enter, and he would sprinkle the blood on the atonement cover. No sin could enter the most holy place. That's why he went through this elaborate ceremony of cleansing. No sin could be in the presence of God. Yahweh and the people were separated because of sin. And that's what the veil represented. This separation from God and his people. It represented a great and enduring separation. A constant reminder that sin rendered humanity unfit for the presence of God. But as soon as Jesus' work on the cross was completed and he died, the veil was torn, done away with. The curtain separating God from his people is obliterated. A way is opened. We read read together in Hebrews earlier what this means, that we can now have confidence to enter into the holy place. What holy place? Into God's very presence, by the blood of his Son, by a new living way, it says, opened to us through the curtain, that is his body. As his body was being broken and torn in two, the access to God was being opened. That is part of what occurs when you place your faith in Christ. As you trust in Jesus' active obedience, his, his sinless life, and you trust in his passive obedience, his suffering and dying for you, your sins are paid for. 
He remembers them no more. He throws them as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't treat you like you sin. Ever. He never treats you that way. Access is reestablished to your God. But I want you to notice one very, very sweet detail of the, of the tearing of the veil. Did you catch it? It, set, it was said it was torn from top to bottom. It was as if somebody was standing there and was tearing it. Not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. And I think that shows us the heart of God. It was as if, as, as if God himself was opening the door and beckoning us back into his presence. It was as if he was saying, I want a relationship with you. It was as if he was saying, I've been waiting such a long time for this. I want you back in my presence. It was as if God the Father was saying, I love you and I want to be with you again. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think of? That God the Father wants to be with you? I don't know if you know Keith Hernandez, but he was a Hall of Fame first baseman and one of baseball's top players for his whole career. He's a lifetime 300 hitter and won numerous gold gloves awards for excellence in fielding. He won the batting championship, having the highest average, most valuable player award for his league and for the World Series. Very accomplished. Yet with all of these accomplishments, he missed out on something that was crucially important to him. His father's acceptance and recognition. He never got it. In a candid interview one time, he said about his father, one day I asked my father, Dad, I have a lifetime 300 batting average. What more do you want? To which he replied, Someday, Keith, you'll look back and you'll say, I could have done more. So many of us have that view of God the Father. We do. You could have done more. Why didn't you do that? You should have done that. Why didn't you do that more? Why didn't you do that less? That's our view of God. Father that's never satisfied, never proud, never accepting. I hope that this disabuses you of that. Couldn't be further from the truth. Every time you hear that, you hear that tape playing in your head. Counter it with what has happened here. He wants to be with you. He is proud of you. He accepts you just the way you are because he's declared you perfect because of Christ. Through Jesus' sacrifice and death, there is no more. That's all it needed. 
With the tearing of the veil, it was as if God the Father is throwing open the doors of his home and running towards you to bring you home. Does it remind you of a parable that Jesus taught one day? That's what's happening here. Sinclair Ferguson writes, You cannot open the pages of the New Testament without realizing that one of the things that makes it so new is not how men and women, is that now men and women call him Father, Abba, Dad. This conviction that we can speak to the maker of the universe in such intimate terms lies at the heart of the Christian faith, he writes. Through Christ, Paul says, we have access to the Father. So far, the miracles we've seen, Christ's hidden work of access and payment, and in the third miracle, we see security through the earthquake. Security through the earthquake. Matthew records in verse 51 that when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now, we're not given any interpretation of this in the New Testament like we are the veil. The veil takes up a good chunk of Hebrews. But we do have a parallel that I think is interesting. We do have a parallel in the Old Testament. The earthquake happened at another critical time in redemptive history at Mount Sinai when another covenant was being ratified. In Exodus 19, the people were gathered at Mount Sinai and there was a covenant being made between God and his people during that time, those months there. There was a covenant that was being formed between them. Covenant of law that the Ten Commandments represent. And just as the covenant is being made, verse 18 in Exodus 19 tells us that the Mount Sinai began to tremble. Just as Moses was coming down to ask the people if they would be faithful, and the people shout in unison, yes, we will, the mountain begins to tremble. So at both moments when a covenant is being made between God and his people, an earthquake marks the occasion. Remember when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room and he was taking the Passover meal and he was making it into the new covenant meal? And as we do each week here, he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples. He said, take and drink. This is the new covenant that is made in my blood. That's what he was doing on the cross. He was making a new covenant. And Hebrews 8 tells us that this new covenant is new and better. It's a better covenant. It's better in access, as we just saw. It's better in intimacy with the Holy Spirit promised to us. It's better in forgiveness. It's better in his promises. And it's better in its security. It's better in its security. The new covenant is better in its security. The new covenant, brothers and sisters, is a powerful tool to help you remember that you are secure 
in your salvation. Lewis Smead's writing about marriage in his book, The Power of Promise, says this. Yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promise once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship that you will not desert, if you have a people you will not forsake, if you have a cause you will not abandon, then in a very small way you are like God because God is a covenant-keeping God. And then he concludes by saying this. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She will be there when, even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. When a person who makes a promise, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of insecurity. That's what God is doing when he makes a covenant with us. A covenant is basically a promise. He's promising us, I will never, ever leave you. I will never forsake you. Christ was making this new covenant on the cross in that he takes an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. I'm going nowhere. Through the covenant, he stretches himself into circumstances that no one can control. Our life cannot be controlled. No matter what you think you can do to control it, you cannot control your life. And people kill themselves trying to do that. But God, through his covenant, says, yes, your life is out of control, but I'll make one thing certain for you. I'll never leave you. I'm always there with you, wherever you go. Between the rock and the hard place, it's me and you. In that deep valley that doesn't seem to ever end, it's me and you. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He can be totally dependent on when no one else is. And that is powerful, brothers and sisters. That's a powerful truth that many times we don't leverage enough. In a world that changes so fast, in relationships that go up and down, where emotional earthquakes upend everything, where promises are not kept, Jesus What Jesus did on the cross was he created an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. And that is powerful. That leads us to the fourth miracle, which is the dead raising. Look with me again at verses 51 to 53. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. 
And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What are we to do with this? I mean, talk about an enigmatic verse. So many questions rushed into my mind. I bet they're rushing into your mind. Why did this happen, first of all? I mean, why? Did the people rise and, and then just wait in their tombs until Jesus rose and then came out of their tombs? What's the order here? What's the chronology here? Did they remain alive like Lazarus, or did they just kind of go back into their tombs and lie down? What did they say to the people? I mean, they appeared to people. Could you tell us? I think this would be very enlightening. On and on and on. I mean, I had a lot of questions. I just cut them down for you. But perhaps the question that cuts through all of this is, why did Matthew find it important to include this? Why did the Holy Spirit prompt Matthew to remember this and write it down? I think he wanted, he did it because he wanted to remind us of two great things that were conquered at the cross. First thing that we saw through darkness is that Jesus was absorbing our punishment, our judgment for sin. Sin taken care of. And through this miracle, Matthew is showing that death is conquered and he gives life to those who believe. Life not unlike what we're experiencing right now. Let me say that again. Life not unlike that which we are experiencing right now. As Douglas O'Donnell writes in his commentary, the cross is not a curse tree, but a fruit tree. It produces first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So this miracle gives us a foretaste of what the final resurrection is going to be like. It's kind of giving us a little picture of that. When our souls will be reunited with our bodies. I asked my father if I had permission to, to talk about my mom's funeral because at the funeral, the pastor, their pastor down there gave an exceptional message, an exceptional homily. And what he did in it is he gave a, a wonderful explanation of, of kind of the chronology of the Christian life and afterlife until consummation. And I'd like to share that with you because he explained that when a believer dies... Their spirit, their soul, who they are, goes to be with the Lord. That's what Paul wrote, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So who you are goes to be with the Lord in heaven. And there they remain. Their spirit with the triune God. Now we're not told too much about that time. In between, we know from Paul's writing that it's far better, as he writes to the Philippians, it's far better than here. But then the pastor explains something that I think we all need to hear today. Because I think here's where our theology gets a little muddy. He said this, where the dead in Christ are right now is good. 
but it's not the best. You know, that's, that's kind of where we get muddy because we stand at funerals and we say, that's the best. <laughs> where they are is the best. I just did a funeral this week and I said, it's great where Carolyn is. But it's actually not the best. We tend to think that they are perfectly satisfied there. That, that the people that have gone on to be in, in the presence of the triune God are perfectly satisfied there. I want to be careful here, but I think that they're looking forward to something better. I think they are. We kind of get a glimpse of this in Revelation 6 when the martyrs underneath the, the, the throne are looking forward to something. And so are all who are in heaven right now. They're looking forward to something. They're looking forward to the consummation. They're looking forward to Christ returning and putting everything back the way it should be. Including, and we get, this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, including who you are reunited with your body. That's better. It's better. That's what Paul is describing for the Corinthians when he writes, the body is sown imperishable, raised, sown perishable, raised imperishable. That's better. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Better. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Better. Sown natural body, raised spiritual body. Better. And that's what we are getting a glimpse of here in Matthew. Just a little glimpse. R.C. Sproul wrote about this miracle. In this incident, we see, as it were, an earnest, a down payment, a promise that in the death and resurrection of Christ, death is defeated. The graves are opened and people come forth alive. That's the message of the Christian faith. And that's the message we see in our fifth and final miracle, the centurion. The fifth miracle, we don't see it this way. The fifth miracle is actually the greatest miracle that happens. You know, we we like to think of, well, what about the parting of the Red Sea? That's pretty amazing. No, pales in comparison. What about Jesus walking on the water? Pales in comparison. All of those pale in comparison to the miracle of salvation, the miracle of conversion, the miracle of a dead, spiritually dead person actually becoming alive. Verse 54 says that when the centurion saw all that was happening, right? So he's there. He's, he's hearing what Jesus is saying. He's seeing everything that happens. He didn't see the veil, but he's seeing everything else. And he says, truly, this was the son of God. This guy is different. James Boyce wrote, it may not have been a full confession. It lacked much of what we would undoubtedly come to know later. But it was correct as far as it went. And we cannot doubt that Matthew included it as an example of what is required of all who come face to face with Jesus. And that's the truth. 
What Matthew is subtly showing us is the single greatest miracle that occurred that day. Here's a hardened Roman centurion. He may have been one of the ones that drove the spikes into Jesus' hands and feet. He may have been the centurion that speared his side. But for sure, this centurion had seen probably hundreds and hundreds and participated in hundreds and hundreds of crucifixions. Hundreds of times driving spikes. Hundreds of times driving spears. Hundreds of times hearing agonizing cries. And he had become hardened. You do that long enough, you're just going through the paces. You don't even care about life or death anymore. And as he watched, and as he heard, the Spirit turned on a light in his heart and mind. And he went from that hardened guy that could care less to someone who cared, who looked and said, this guy's different. And that's what happens in conversion. You see a Jesus who doesn't mean anything to you. As a matter of fact, to some are the enemy. And when the Spirit does its work, you turn from saying, who cares about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago, 4,000 miles away and died? To a, to a person who says, this guy's the Son of God. That's what happens in conversion. That's the single greatest miracle in Scripture. The indifferent becoming interested. Like a militant atheist, Don from Oxford, the last thing he wanted to be is converted. God sneaks up on him and C.S. Lewis is surprised by joy. Like a fanatical minister, son, a missionary to America, a great theological mind, but a total failure as a human being and a minister who sits in a chapel, hears the Bible being read, and all of a sudden he's changed. John Wesley. Or like a retired man in his 80s who had been a vice president of McGraw-Hill, senior vestry at the Episcopal Church on the city council in Sanibel Island, respected by all, loved by many. He went off to Crisillo weekend with a bunch of lay people and began, who began praying for him and talking about Jesus, and he comes home transformed. Or like a monk with a mistress who's struggling sitting under a tree saying, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. One day, God turns on the light in his heart and he begins to write St. Augustine. Then there's the very unlikely rough cut man who says over a hundred years ago, I wish somebody would take care of all the poors, the drunks, and winos in London. Comes face to face with Jesus. And William Booth ends up saying, Lord, I give you everything there is in this man. Do with me what you will. That's what happens when you come face to face with Jesus. The greatest miracle of the entire Bible happens. Salvation.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this text. That was hard, I'm sure, for you to have written down and preserved and read over and over and over again. I can't imagine having a film of my son die. That I have to hear over and over again. Thank you, Lord, for being so sacrificial. For being so loving. And for giving your son to us. Lord, help us to be worthy of that. To your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.